Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gray Matter, the podcast from Greylock, where we share stories from company builders and business leaders. I'm Heather Mack, head of editorial at Greylock. Today, Greylock general partner Reed Hoffman interviews Kevin Scott, who's the chief technology officer at Microsoft. In addition to his deep understanding of how enterprise organizations conceive, develop, and adopt new technology, Kevin is known for his dedication to figuring out how artificial intelligence can level the playing field for society. This interview took place during Greylock's Intelligent Future event, a day-long summit featuring experts and entrepreneurs in artificial intelligence. You can watch the video of this interview on our YouTube channel, and you can read the transcript on our website, greylock.com. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Kevin, I'll say just this simply. Kevin is one of the very few people I've seen when he came and joined LinkedIn who improved both the immense quality of the engineering at LinkedIn, the strategy of the engineering, and the uh, scale of it on all three vectors joining, you know, years into it. And that, you know, it's a very rare achievement. And then, of course, when Satya and Bill uh, met him for the first time, they called me immediately after and said, don't you think he should be the CTO of Microsoft? And he was like, yes, that's a good idea. So, <laughs> um, now, uh, let's, let's actually start with uh, the learnings around Copilot, because uh, there may be awareness here about what's going on with Copilot, but the fact is it's a lens into the changing paradigm of how coding and engineering development is going to work yeah. overall. So why don't we start there? Describe a little bit of what's going on with Copilot and then describe how this is going to change how development is done. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things to at least to be learned from the Copilot experience that are relevant to folks who are building machine learning systems or companies around uh, AI. Um, so, so for those who don't know, uh, GitHub Copilot is a programming assistant tool that can take natural language prompts, like you can express a program you would like to exist and it generates code for you. And shockingly, uh, like the, the performance of the system is uh, improving at a pretty steady clip, but when we uh, made it generally available a couple of months ago, it was uh, producing more than 40% of the code that uh, its users were, uh, were producing overall. Um, so it's, and qualitatively, like one of those tools where someone gets access to it. it not, not everyone, right? There are people who don't like GitHub Copilot, which is fine. Uh, but like many, many, many of its users are like, this is so valuable to me, you will uh, get it from my cold, dead hands. Uh, um, so, you know, two interesting things about Copilot. One is when we started development on it, um, we, we had evidence that large language models were actually going to be able to do this translation from natural language to code. Uh, and even when we showed people uh, inside of Microsoft uh, that like this might be possible, we got a range of reactions from, no, this isn't real, like this is impossible, like it's never going to work, to like maybe it'll work, but I'm highly skeptical. Um, and so a big part of what we had to do is to overcome that sort of negative bias uh, to actually get going. Uh, because we, we had evidence not only that it was going to work, but like we, we had a really concrete plan for how we were going to make it better and better and better uh, over time. Um, and, and so I think that is a thing that we're seeing across the board with these uh, foundation models. Like people, 
uh, people sort of look at them and um, you know, there's certainly a degree of hype around them, um, but there's skepticism that they actually are gonna be useful for the things that people wanna build. Um, and I think the second thing, maybe the more profound thing about GitHub Copilot is like it is just one copilot of a potential very many. Um, what we were able to do with Copilot of automating this particular type of, um, not, not even automating, just sort of assisting people with a particular type of cognitive work uh, is going to be just directly applicable, replicable to a whole bunch of other uh, domains. So like any sort of repetitive cognitive work is likely going to have a Copilot uh, in the future. And like the, the model that powers uh, GitHub Copilot, uh, OpenAI's Codex model, really does let you think about software development in a different way. So like there is now a mode of uh, software development <laughs> that you can do, which is uh, having a, a conversation iteratively describing an application into existence. Uh, so it's not like one utterance or one prompt generates an entire program, but like you sort of say like, here's what I would like, it generates something and you're like, okay, like that's good, but like augment it in this way, change this way. And so like it, it's a multi-turn dialogue that you're having with this system to get, uh, and uh, like I've got dozens of these demos uh, that we built inside of Microsoft using the API. And you know, increasingly as people get access to the Codex API itself, like lots and lots of people are seeing the, the, the power of this. So first one part of this, which is, uh, what is this gonna mean for the quality of software development? Uh, error rates, security, um, you know, kind of ability to uh, do kind of new kinds of work and so forth. Give, give a little bit of the lens of what you're seeing in Copilot across these vectors and others. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's early days, so we will see. Uh, I mean, the thing to remember with uh, GitHub Copilot and with Codex in general is generating code with it doesn't absolve you of the responsibility to uh, make sure that your product is high quality and error-free and safe. Uh, and so there's still a huge amount of responsibility that lies with the, with the developer or the entrepreneur on uh, you know, just making sure that they're building a thing that is, uh, you know, has integrity. Um, the, 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 maybe the hardest part of building GitHub Copilot was not the AI bits that translate natural language into code, it was the sort of safety layer that sits on top of the foundation model that uh, looks at the input prompts and the outputs of the model and tries to make sure that it's dealing with uh, like inappropriate biases in the model that is uh, like dealing with security, that's dealing with safety issues, that's dealing with you know what happens if the model happens to parrot something that's copyrighted or like under some kind of license uh, that would make it illegal for it to emit uh, what it what it's potentially emitting. Um, and so like there's just a ton of work that we had to do to like build that uh, layer. Um, and I think there will be more work that we have to do over time. Uh, the exciting thing about it is like it does two, two things. Uh, one is uh, it takes uh, you know, developers who are in high demand in a world that has like a boundless appetite for software and it's like a really interesting tool to help with productivity. Um, but the more interesting thing is I think it opens aperture up on who gets to be a developer, um, which can be both good and bad.
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm on the good side of the equation, uh, but like, you know, mindful of, you know, you're, you're going to have a whole bunch of human beings who are going to be able to build complicated things with, uh, you know, with this new capability. And like, we have to make sure that like you're dealing with all of the security and safety stuff uh, in, in a pretty rigorous way. Well, one of the things that's pretty central around all of these foundational large language models is the scale and how they're playing. And, you know, obviously we build these large ones. There's a set of comments I'm going to ask you about that. And then there's also going to be a whole bunch of other ones that are made as well, just because, yes, you're building a, you know, X hundred billion parameter model, <laughs> right? Right. But there's still, like, people can go make and do pretty amazing things with a 6 billion parameter model or a 20 yep. billion parameter model. So say a little bit about, let's start with, what are the implications of the fact that there is this massive scale set of models that a few number of companies can build? And what is the implications in the developer ecosystem and the, and the possibilities in the world from that? Yep. So, you know, the, the models are getting, uh, like the, the, the foundation models, like the language models, and, and increasingly like what we'll see this year are like multimodal models, so things that, you know, are building representations of the world across multiple different domains. Um, they're just going to get more and more expensive uh, to build just because it's massive amounts of compute infrastructure required. Uh, and there doesn't appear to be uh, a point of diminishing marginal return that we're approaching on scale. So you make them bigger, um, and I'm making this sound way easier than it actually is, but you make them bigger, uh, and they become more powerful at the tasks to which they've already been put in their smaller incarnations, uh, and they also become broader at the same time. So, like they, uh, you know, they can be used for like a broader set of things than the previous uh, smaller incarnations of the model were able to do. And so, like you know, there's just plenty of incentive to go invest in you know, bigger and bigger iterations of these models and to like, make sure that the foundation that you're building is more and more powerful uh, over time. Um, the way that we think about it and the way that you know, OpenAI, who's our partner, thinks about uh, this is like we want to make them accessible through APIs uh, so that you actually have a pretty rich third-party developer ecosystem that's building on top of the models. Um, like I, I don't think... Um, it's hard to imagine what individual company, even one that you know is worth a trillion, a trillion and a half, two trillion, like whatever, like you know these, these big companies are that uh, some of us work for, are going to have enough imagination and resources to build all of the things that uh, can be built that will serve the public good and humanity and you know like produce a whole lot of value ourselves, um, and so it's just sort of exciting. Like e- even I was. Uh, you know, browsing through the news yesterday and just the, you know, the number of uh, excited articles about what people are doing with GPT-3, uh, which is now a relatively ubiquitous thing. It's like two and a half years old at this point. Uh, but like, there's just a huge amount of energy uh, around people building things on top of this. And like, that's super exciting. And like, it just gets better and more interesting over time. One of the questions some entrepreneurs have asked is, given that, they, that, these, that there will be a relatively small number of these super scale models provided through APIs, 
what are the kinds of ways they should think about distinguishing their businesses as Bill and I? What are some of the things that you would think are, you know, kind of ideas and lenses, to, things to keep in mind? Yeah, look, so I, I think, to me, that, that is the most interesting thing here. So, like, there, there, there is a bunch of interesting computer science and systems challenges, uh, like building, you know, really big models. Um, but I, I don't know that there need to be 15 or 20 platforms uh, out there for things that are going to, you know, eventually do substantially the same thing. It'll be good to have a few of them because competition's good and you want to make sure that, you know, like, we're making things better and prices are, you know, not... Uh, not out of whack with reality, um, but like the interesting thing is just sort of the things that every things that everybody knows about building businesses always. Like you know, you're, you're going to have a point of view on a customer need. Uh, you'll understand the customer better than uh, you know the big companies. Probably you will uh, you know like you will be nimble in picking these things up and like just very quickly iterating on things that are highly valuable for the customer. Like. The, the opportunities are huge. Uh, so like, you know, think about the large models as like a tech technology enabler, like not as the product that you're, that you're building. And what are the, I mean, it's very early days, so we don't really know what the, the, this real roadmap will look like. But obviously there's a bunch of times where you say, look, you should actually get the absolute best thing you can, which is the largest possible model that's trained well by a very high elite team and a huge amount of money has gone into yep. constructing this. What are the cases in which going off and doing your own smaller model yep. might make sense? What are some of the possible lenses or principles on that? Well, I, I think, so the, the, the tricky thing about the moment right now is like our intuitions are being challenged and like this is the thing that we face at Microsoft, uh, like is we are re-architecting ourselves internally to like more and more use these foundation models and like have fewer and fewer teams who are like, you know, building end-to-end, -end, you know, big things themselves. Um, and so like the default intuition is like, oh, I will be able to do better than this big uh, general model uh, if like I have my own data and like I get to choose my model architecture and like I train it and fine tune it in like this very bespoke way. Um, and some of the times that's gonna be wrong uh, and some of, the <laughs> some of the times that's gonna be right. And so like the, the thing that I would look at is I'd start with like, can I get access to this, uh, to this big model and is there a way to do prompt engineering or fine tuning on top of the big model with my data and like for my use case that will like make it performant? Uh, and if you can do that, then you, you probably are architecting yourself in a way where when the foundation model gets bigger and more powerful, you can just sort of swap that in and your application will get bigger and more powerful. You're just sort of inheriting the improvements that are getting amortized across a whole bunch of different applications. But sometimes you're gonna have to like build something that's like really custom, like the, you know, the, the big foundation models like just don't have the thing in scope that you want to do. Like a, a good example for instance is we are building a whole bunch of models for science right now uh, where um, the model architectures and the data for things that are really good for language applications don't help you much in making a, 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 
a molecular dynamics simulation, like where you're trying to get to like fast quantum accurate uh, models of how atoms interact with one another. Well, let's linger on science for a bit because it's actually among the accelerants that I think that probably most of the people in this room have some sense of, but it's super important, which is, you know, science is surprisingly amplified by tooling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, typically people think of the tooling as, oh, it's a new telescope or it's a, you know, you know new collider or a new da-da-da. But actually part of what we're getting is we're getting the tuning through new tools through software and yeah. through these models. So what, you know, we've seen obviously AlphaFold, we've seen BakerFold, you know, we've seen some of this stuff. What are some of the things that are coming in terms of the science tooling and accelerations? So there, there are two categories, like apologies for like getting uh, dorky here. Um, but so, so there, there, you know, for the computer scientists uh, in, the, in the room, there are like two categories of like really hard problems in the sciences. So like you've got this collection of combinatorial optimization problems uh, where you've got something discrete and you want to, you know, optimize something about the, you know, like this discrete system. And then you have numerical optimization problems, which are usually systems of like highly nonlinear partial differential equations that describe something about the functioning of like physics or the natural world. Uh, and like in, in both cases, like you, you have a model of a system that's super complicated, um, so complicated in fact that all you're able to do is make a bunch of painful compromises about like how you're trying to get to an optimal or a near optimal solution to a problem. Um, so with combinatorial optimizations, you typically use a bunch of heuristics, like you sort of stare at the problem domain for a while and you're like, okay, well, if I do this hacky thing or this other hacky thing, then like I can make the, the, this thing that otherwise is NP-complete or NP-hard like uh, converge faster. Um, like in, in these numerical optimization systems, like you, you just sort of make sort of a whole bunch of different assumptions. It's like I'm going to like make approximations to like how I solve this, uh, like, you know, the wave equation, like I'm going to uh, compromise on the resolution of the system. I'm going to compromise on like the number of time steps or like how big the time steps are that I'm making. And so what, what we are seeing in both of those styles of systems now, and like you can sort of pick up a copy of Nature or Science uh, any given week and see someone using these techniques, is that you can put uh, an AI self-supervised system uh, into these simulation loops where it's learning from the full granularity system. Like you just sort of run it grindingly slow uh, at full resolution and you train a model that learns something about that domain. And once you have the model, like you put it into the core of the optimization loop and then things just sort of go faster. Um, there's a bunch of like research papers, like a really good one from uh, uh, folks at Caltech, uh, like they won a best award paper as neural, uh, uh, neural differential operators. Uh, it, so so they, they basically came up with a method of solving Navier-Stokes, which is uh, the computational fluid dynamics, uh, partial differential equations. Uh, and like they applied it to airfoil design and they were getting like 100,000x uh, speed ups over the previous best in breed system without losing anything in terms of quality. Extraordinary, um, and so like I think there's just a lot of opportunity there to, uh, and, and like it means like better medicines. It means like maybe we find you know 
carbon fixing catalyst uh, that like we don't know about now. Like I, I'm just as excited, maybe more excited about that than like some of the things that we get when we finally have a, a working quantum computer with more than 50 qubits. Well, yeah, 50, more than 50 logical qubits. Correct. Yes, classic thing for, for folks. What do you think is the, I mean, there's been a lot of, there's been some reporting on the AI acceleration, you know, AlphaFold, et cetera, on biological things. What do you think are some of the other science areas that people aren't paying as much attention to you also get that acceleration? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's pretty broad. Um, so um, I would not underestimate, uh, like even in biology, like how interesting this is for materials design or like things where like in order to transition to a uh, like a carbon-free economy it's not just about like getting rid of internal combustion engines like you have a whole bunch of materials where either the production of the material uh, consumes a bunch of uh, energy that's carbon intensive or where like the thing itself like plastics uh, for instance like are like require hydrocarbons um, and so like, I, I think there's a huge number of like, really interesting materials problems that the, these AI systems will accelerate. Um, and one of the ones that I heard about relatively recently was actually, in fact, the simulation of certain kinds of fusion reactions relative to using hydrocarbons as the energy yep. chain within them. And the simulation is one of the things that actually increases the probability that we could make that work. Yeah, Right. correct. Well, and, and like even even in things like there, there are a couple of like really promising fusion energy companies uh, uh, out there right now that like two that I'm tracking pretty closely that are yeah, making really really fast progress. And like it's one of the things that you would hope uh, would come into existence. If either one of these companies are su successful, like you should be able to pretty rapidly, like you know, small numbers of decades, like get a large amount of like very cheap energy that's uh, yeah, sustainable deployed. And like a big part of what they're doing is like they, they need to be able, to, in order for them to move fast, to move at software rate, like they need to be able to simulate a bunch of stuff at super high fidelity. And so these AI systems there like just changes the, you know, the rate of iteration that they can do. Because otherwise, like, you're sort of stuck doing things like iter, where you have to spend $50 billion building one tokamak, uh, and uh, you know, you'll sort of see if it works or not. So after this question, I'm going to ask the audience if, you, if they have uh, a question or two that they uh, may want to contribute. I have enough for us to be talking for, through tomorrow. Um, but So I will choose the last one is, it's a little bit of a, you know, you can draw a line, because I know your point of view on this, but you can draw a line from some of the things we've already asked to, you've already answered to this, but I think it's worth calling out. How does the world of knowledge and professional work change? What parts are replaced? What parts are amplified? What parts are modified? And obviously, in a, you know, again, you could answer that for hours. So. You know, given, of course, the book, Rebuilding the American Dream, a bunch of other things, what would be some of the lenses that you would say for what you see coming? Yeah, and, and so like, this is just my opinion, so there, there are a bunch of different points of view on this. Um, I, I think the thing, you know, Nero and Aurora and like some of the stuff that you're going to see very shortly notwithstanding, like I think one of the 
things that we maybe have done over the past decade is sort of overestimated the amount of change that AI is going to produce for um, like industrial applications and manufacturing and sort of these interfaces of technology in the real world. And we've underestimated like how much impact it's gonna make uh, to cognitive work. Um, and so I think in particular, any repetitive cognitive work, no matter how sophisticated it is, like whether it's programming or it's uh, you know sort of thinking about experiment design, if you're a you know a physicist or uh, just sort of pick your thing, marking up contracts, uh, like diagnosing uh, you know, illness. Um, most of those things are entirely in scope for these AI systems. Uh, and, and like I think people even are gonna be shocked this year to see like how big a step we're, we're gonna make again. Like uh, I, I think every year, uh, you know, like we get surprised by like what happens. Like, you know, like you and I are both friends with Demis and you know, like even though like, they're Google and not Microsoft, like you, you have to just be awed by uh, what DeepMind has done with AlphaFold like it, and, and like the contribution that they've made to, made to science. Um, and so like, yeah, we, we've had Copilot, we have AlphaFold's, uh, you know, Protein Data Bank, um, yeah, last year. Like, I, I think the things coming this year are gonna be even bigger. And like most of them will directly impact on cognitive work. Um, and so that doesn't mean that, like, you know, they're going to be a bunch of, I don't think they're going to be a bunch of AI, like, lawyers or AI programmers that are going to do 100% of those jobs. It's that uh, we're going to have real productivity gains for knowledge work in ways that we really haven't had since the, maybe the onset of the internet. Yeah, I completely agree. And, like, maybe more than the internet. Yeah, I completely agree. <laughs> All right, so... Question here. Um, yep. Thank you, Reed and Kevin. I'm curious, um, you know, I fully agree when you said that not all applications and innovation is going to come from a bunch of few large companies. Um, you also mentioned about some of the initiatives through API exposure that, you know, you think this could be facilitated. What other ideas do you think could help proliferate the ecosystem around? And from your long-spanning career, you know, what are some of the things that you could see from, from past history as well? That's one. And second, I was curious for all the initiatives that you've described within your organization. Are you looking at any um, optimization efficiencies at this point? And if there are any, any thoughts to share on that? Yeah. Thank you. I, I think both of those are super good questions. I, I mean, like, I, I will sort of say that um, this assertion that I have that I don't think big companies will be able to do it all themselves is like part of that's reality and part of it's hope. Like I, I really do hope for the sake of the world that like you don't have uh, like two or three ultra rich, uh, you know, coastal urban innovation center companies making all of the decisions about like where the like material productivity gains in the world come with and like what problems are important to solve and which problems aren't. Like that just sounds horrific to me. Um, my personal bias. Uh, so, so look, I, I think, you know, one of the opportunities for maybe the folks in, in this room, like entrepreneurs is, you know, even if, 
you probably aren't going to see just because it's so capital intensive, like a ton of folks building, you know, models that cost, you know, a billion dollars each to train. Uh, and, you know, we'll be there at some point uh, in the not too distant future, uh, given, you know, how things are scaling. Um, I think there's so much stuff like infrastructure that has to get built. So it's not just like, hey, like you build the models, like you wrap them with APIs uh, and like make them accessible to, uh, to other folks. Um, like I think it is like an entire machine learning development ecosystem that has to get built around taking dependencies on large models. So helping people with prompt engineering, like fine tuning, like how you manage data privacy and provenance, like versioning, uh, fine tuning data. Uh, managing experiments, like I mean, like th there's sort of a whole set of things that we had to build for sort of the previous generation of machine learning. I think you're going to have like all of those things need to be rethought for uh, you know foundation models and like that application stack. And you're going to have to have a whole bunch of new things. Like one of the things we're all probably off building right now uh, that we haven't collectively exposed to the uh, public are safety, uh, safety and moderation layers. So like this, this thing that sits on top of, or in between the user and, uh, and Codex and GitHub Copilot, uh, like that's a component that somebody could turn into infrastructure uh, that everybody's gonna need. Uh, like we, we need safety and security and you know, responsibility management for all of these things, especially as the applications and the models get more powerful. So I, I, th I think it's just a bunch of opportunity. It's interesting, like it's exciting, like it needs to get built. Uh, like even that stuff, like I don't think gets built entirely by Google and Microsoft and you know Alibaba or whoever else is or Baidu who's gonna uh, you know build this stuff. Um, so and and on your second question, for <laughs> for sure, we're thinking about efficiency. Like you'd be an idiot not to be thinking about efficiency when you're burning as much uh, like compute as we are. Um, and, and they're interesting efficiency problems in general. Like I probably can't say too much specifically uh, about what we're doing. Um, but like one of the really interesting things, like there's been a bunch of stuff written about um, like the carbon footprint of training big models. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, the carbon footprint of training, uh, training a big model relative to like the rest of the cloud computing footprint of like a big provider is like de minimis. Uh, and like the cloud computing carbon footprint, like given how we are able to optimize that energy consumption, like relative to global uh, carbon footprint, also de minimis. Um, but like the exciting thing is like when you can build a foundation model, like opposed to the way that we used to like build things end to end where you've got a hundred different like vertical machine learning stacks inside of a company. Like if you can take a whole bunch of that stuff and like put it into one component, like that's a really interesting optimization surface area. Um, and so like we, we think we're actually already getting wins from this where you know, we can amortize the cost of that training across so many different things. Like we've got like hundreds and hundreds of features that we're building on top of large models right now uh, inside of the company. And each one of those is like uh, a thing that either wouldn't exist because it would have been too expensive to do before or impossible or uh, like something that would have had its own vertical, uh, vertical stack consuming a ton more resources in aggregate than what we're doing right now. And so the thing I would add to that is 
because I think the whole like, oh, carbon footprint of doing these large models idiotic is that the application of these models to being energy efficient, like, like for example, one of the things that DeepMind did, which is study the data centers and figure out how to be more inefficient, is, is actually net super positive. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Like we, we have these large models right now optimizing like the energy footprint of our data centers. Yeah. Uh, and, like and the we, results are real. Yeah, I mean, like we, we're even doing things like uh, like we, we are selling excess um, we're selling excess stored energy in our uh, uninterruptible power supply infrastructure back to the grid and like using uh, AI systems to bid uh, in the energy spot markets uh, for uh, you know, for for power. Yeah, as an example. All right. Yeah. As you can tell, I can easily and very happily talk to Kevin for uh, hours. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for having <laughs> me. That concludes this episode of Gray Matter. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also check out all Gray Matter content on our website, graylock.com slash blog. And you can follow us on Twitter at graylockvc. I'm Heather Mack. Thanks for listening. <laughs>